Welcome to Skim This. So much for 2021 getting off to a quiet start. We've got a lot to get to today. First, we've got the story of what was supposed to happen in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, and then the story on what actually went down. Then we'll look at what this week's big elections in Georgia mean for who controls the Senate. We've also got a look at what's slowing down the COVID vaccine rollout, what the deal is with Iran's big uranium enrichment announcement, and finally, since the only thing more stressful than stressful news might be not being able to find things in your fridge, we'll kick off our 2021 How to Skim Your Life New Year Challenge by skimming my fridge. It's a disaster, but I'll take one for the team. All right, let's do it. Wednesday was supposed to be a relatively straightforward day in Washington, D.C. Not an unimportant day, but one that most historians, journalists, and politicians expected would be predictable. Are there any objections to counting the certificate of vote of the state of Alabama that the teller has verified appears to be regular in form and authentic? Hearing none. More than two months after November's presidential election, members of the Senate and the House of Representatives were scheduled to get together to certify the votes of the Electoral College. Back in December, electors cast their votes for president and, as expected, 306 voted for Joe Biden and 232 voted for Donald Trump. The paperwork from those Electoral College meetings was gathered together and sent to D.C. in some pretty nice mahogany boxes lined with leather. For real. And on Wednesday, like has happened in every presidential election in recent history, Congress was scheduled to open up those boxes, confirm that what was inside was legit, and certify the Electoral College vote. But in the weeks leading up to Wednesday's joint session of Congress, we'd begun to hear two very different descriptions of what could possibly happen. Most politicians, Democrats and Republicans, said, the election is over. You can be happy or unhappy with the results, but at this point, the people and the Electoral College have spoken. A small number of Senate Republicans and many more in the House of Representatives were still planning to object to the results from several close states that Biden won, including Arizona, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. But those objections were really just a political statement, not an actual threat to the certification process. But President Trump had a different view of Wednesday's meeting. We will never give up. We will never concede. That was Trump at a rally in Washington, right before Congress started certifying the Electoral College votes. Trump told the crowd that Congress could unconstitutionally change the results of the 2020 presidential election and that his supporters could play a role in making that happen. And he tried to enlist his vice president, Mike Pence, too. If Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. Not long after those remarks, Pence took a seat in the Senate to preside over the meeting of Congress. But instead of listening to Trump's appeal, Pence basically said, I'm part of that first crowd, the ones who say Congress can't change the results of an election and that the election is over. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell agreed, and he urged Republicans not to object to the election results. We're debating a step that has never been taken in American history whether Congress should overrule the voters and overturn a presidential election. And this is when things got complicated. 
While it's difficult to understand the motives of a mob, the timing of what happened next would suggest the thousands of people who marched from Trump's rally to the U.S. Capitol wanted to stop the certification of the election result. At the very least, they surrounded the building, pushed past police barricades, and some of them physically forced their way into Congress. This is the moment on the floor of the House of Representatives when that mob rule attempted to stop the constitutional process of certifying the results of the Electoral College. We'll pause. Protesters are in the building. Thank you. Without objection, the chair declares the House in recess. What followed won't soon be forgotten. A pro-Trump mob roamed the halls of Congress, broke into offices, threatened members of the media, and attempted to force their way into the House of Representatives. In one image that's now been published by news outlets around the world, a man paraded a Confederate flag through the Capitol Rotunda. Just across town, President Trump was pretty silent all day. Members of his staff and politicians from across the aisle begged him to tell his supporters to go home. And Trump eventually did so, kind of. But even that supposed message of calm was laced with falsehoods and signals of support for those who gathered in Washington to try and overturn the election. Soon after, Twitter took the historic step of removing several of Trump's tweets, and as police worked to stop the riot on Capitol Hill, the president was temporarily locked out of Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Eventually, Congress got back to the work it set out to do. We told you earlier about the handful of senators who were planning to object to the Electoral College results. Half of them said the hours-long period in which mob rule had stopped the constitutional process of confirming the presidential election had changed their minds. Here was Georgia Senator Kelly Leffler. The violence, the lawlessness, and siege of the halls of Congress are abhorrent and stand as a direct attack on the very institution my, objected, my objection was intended to protect the sanctity of the American democratic process. South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham, one of Trump's most vocal supporters, also made it clear it was time to accept the results of the election and move on. I cannot convince people, certain groups, by my words, but I will tell you by my actions, that maybe I, among any, above all others in this body, need to say this. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are lawfully elected and will become the president and the vice president of the United States on January the 20th. We should note several Republican senators still objected to the Electoral College vote, along with more than 100 Republicans in the House of Representatives. But after several hours of more speeches and an attempt to block certification of the results from Arizona and Pennsylvania, it was the job of none other than the vice president to formally put an end to a day that's likely to go down in history for all the wrong reasons. The votes for president of the United States are as follows. Joseph R. Biden Jr. of the state of Delaware has received 306 votes. Donald J. Trump of the state of Florida has received 232 votes. So now you know during the first week of January after a presidential election year, there's a pretty tedious process for certifying the Electoral College vote. 
one that we hope we'll never have to cover again. As for the fallout from this, it's still ongoing. A growing number of lawmakers, predominantly Democrats, are calling to remove President Trump from office, saying that despite the inauguration being just a few weeks away, Wednesday showed he can still cause a lot of chaos. One way to remove Trump could be through the 25th Amendment, the constitutional amendment that says the vice president and most of the president's cabinet have the power to declare the president unfit to serve. In that case, the VP would immediately take over. If that doesn't happen, Democratic leadership also says they're considering impeachment again. It's far from clear whether either of these options will play out, but we'll keep you updated on this show and in our daily newsletter. To sign up, head on over to theskim.com. By now, you've probably heard that two Democratic candidates in Georgia won their Senate races against two incumbent Republicans. If you're thinking, wait, why didn't this election get settled in November? Well, there was an attempt, but Georgia's election system requires candidates to win at least 50% of the vote in order to claim a victory. And after the November Senate races, none of the candidates hit that mark. Enter two major runoffs, a whole lot of money, and a lot of political ads. This is about saving America from socialism and protecting the freedoms that make us great. If the radicals take total control, we'll never get our country back. Looting Leffler and Chicken Purdue. Their stockings were stuffed from the stocks that they sold when they heard COVID was coming before we were told. Okay, most political ads are usually over the top, but this election in Georgia was historically unprecedented in a lot of ways since the results from this one state will decide who controls the Senate for at least the first two years of the Biden administration. And whether Democrats or Republicans are in control could mean the difference between laws getting passed or not, Supreme Court judges being appointed or not, and a whole lot else in between. So what happened? Democrats needed to win both of these Senate runoffs in order to secure a majority in the U.S. Senate. And that's exactly what they did. One of Georgia's new senators is Raphael Warnock, who narrowly defeated incumbent Kelly Leffler. In this historic win, Warnock, a pastor of the church where Martin Luther King Jr. once preached, is now the first black senator for the state of Georgia. Georgia's other new senator, John Ossoff, who defeated incumbent David Perdue. Ossoff also became the youngest Democratic senator elected since Joe Biden. He's 33. So what does this mean for control of the Senate? Republicans and Democrats are going to be dealing with some pretty tricky math here. That's Leah Azkarinam. She's a political analyst and the editor-in-chief of The Hotline by the National Journal. Democrats will soon have 50 senators in D.C., and Republicans will have 50 as well. But here's where the Constitution gets involved. According to Article 1, Section 3, ties in the Senate go to the vice president, which in a few days will mean Kamala Harris, meaning Democrats will have the upper hand. But even if Democrats do have that 50-50 majority with tiebreaker, they still have members of their caucus who are going to be tricky to win over for progressive causes. See, it only takes one of the 50 Democrats not being on board with a bill to cause it to fall apart. Democrat Joe Manchin of West Virginia is one vote that Democrats may not always be able to count on. 
For instance, Manchin voted for two of Trump's Supreme Court justices and has broken rank with Democrats on issues like gun control. All of which means Senate Democrats may find it tricky to do some pretty basic things, despite technically being in the majority. It's like, how do you pass a budget? How do you pass defense spending? Things that should be pretty easy, things that have traditionally in a, a, a former life been pretty easy, but are going to be tough when individual members are trying to get their pet issues through. And, and those pet issues just there's a, a huge variety of them from tech and Facebook and privacy to, you know, individual issues that affect their states in terms of the environment and jobs. We should say controlling the Senate does come with a few other powers that Democrats will probably be very glad to have. The process of President Biden staffing up his government probably just got a lot easier since a number of appointees need to be confirmed by the Senate. And liberal commentators have already started calling for Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer to think about retiring soon, since Democrats in the Senate could probably band together to help put another liberal justice on the court to replace him. But having to rely on the vote of every single Democratic senator does mean that trying to pass more progressive policies like a Green New Deal or Medicare for All is going to be pretty hard. So even though Democrats controlling the White House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives might sound like they'll be able to call all the shots in D.C., the truth could look a lot different. So it's not like Democrats get that 50% mark, therefore everything on their wish list is granted. Over the last few episodes, we've been asking you for a favor to fill out a quick listener survey so we can continue to make sure we're producing the best possible content for you. The survey will take you less than five minutes to complete and it really helps us out. Hundreds of you have already responded and we've loved getting to learn more about you. One of our listeners in Germany even wrote in saying skim this helps prevent Betriebsblindheit, which is a brand new word for us. It's also our favorite new word. To find out what it means and for the link to fill out our survey, check out our show notes or head to theskim.com slash pod survey. That's theskim with two M's dot com slash pod survey. A few minutes of your time will help us give you hours and hours of the content you want in 2021 and beyond. Thanks. It feels like every day we get a news alert about the COVID-19 vaccine. And a lot of them have been good. Like the news that a third vaccine from Oxford and the drug company AstraZeneca has been approved in countries including the United Kingdom and India. There's also good news from drug maker Moderna, who said they'll be upping their vaccine production by 20%, promising 100 million additional doses by the end of 2021. But despite those positive headlines, it turns out that the U.S. is having problems actually rolling out the vaccine and is lagging way behind its OG targets. So, like we said, good news on paper, bad news in real life. As a reminder, the federal government originally promised that 20 million people would be vaccinated by the end of 2020. That didn't happen. Before we break down what's causing the holdup, let's first talk about how the vaccine was supposed to be distributed. My name's Josh Michaud. I'm Associate Director for Global Health Policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation. We asked Misho, who's in charge of the rollout process? 
Essentially, the way that it's supposed to work is that Operation Warp Speed, which is this interagency effort of the U.S. government to both research, develop, and also produce and distribute vaccines, will be in charge of actually taking the vaccines that are on hand, that are rolling off of the production lines, and sending it out to states and localities across the nation. Meaning the federal government is in charge of getting the vaccines to the states. And it's up to the states to figure out how to distribute those vaccines to eligible Americans. Okay, so that's already a lot of people to keep on CC for every decision. And making this even more complicated, private companies are in the mix. Operation Warp Speed has also enlisted companies like Walmart and CVS to help with vaccine rollout, especially to people in nursing homes. So when you boil it down, you're really seeing a partnership between the federal government, state governments, sometimes local uh, you know, health departments and, and, and city governments, and private companies. There's a lot of different moving parts here. So that's how the vaccine rollout started. How's it going? One way to tell is by looking at how many vaccines have been distributed to different states and how many vaccinations have occurred in states. And so far, the CDC's numbers indicate that while around 17 million vaccines have been distributed, only around 5 million have actually gone into people's arms. We should note, because states are in charge of getting people vaccinated, some are doing things better than others. States like West Virginia and North Dakota actually have a high ratio of vaccines to people vaccinated. Whereas places like Georgia and Maryland, not so much. So what's causing the holdup? Michaud told us the first reason is that state officials and healthcare systems are already overstressed. Hospitals across the country are crowded and running out of key supplies like oxygen and beds. In certain states like California, some patients are being turned away to preserve hospital capacity. Add in the responsibility of distributing the vaccine with very little guidance from the federal government, and... It's imposing a lot of responsibilities on an already overworked system in terms of the providers, in terms of the government officials responsible for doing this. Health departments, which are mostly responsible for doing this work, are already, you know, running on fumes because they're dealing with the everyday, you know, challenges of the pandemic itself. The last thing those officials and healthcare workers need is a ton of extra paperwork or phones ringing off the hook. Those overworked systems also face a second challenge, funding. So what might have made a big difference is, you know, four to six months ago, having a much stronger emphasis and planning effort and critically funding support for state and local governments in order to implement what we knew was gonna be a complex task and efforts to vaccinate people. As many may know, you know, the federal support for this effort uh, of distribution in terms of financing has been quite low up until now. Uh, so something on the order of 200 to $300 million for the United States uh, as a whole has been provided for vaccine distribution, which is ne not nearly enough. There's some good news here. The newest relief package from Capitol Hill is allocating another $8 billion for vaccine distribution. But experts still warn that funding is basically just a Band-Aid, and states and healthcare officials will need more money in the near future. That brings us to our third reason distribution has been slow, the calendar. 
the vaccines were authorized towards the end of December and there were certain numbers of doses that were sent out uh, at that time. And of course, this coincided with the holidays. And so that did have some measurable effect on slowing down vaccinations. So the vaccine rollout had a slow start around the holidays, but U.S. health officials are hoping to hit the ground running in 2021. Misho told us, now that the holidays are behind us, and now that states have a cash infusion, these next few weeks are going to be really important. So watch this space. The next two weeks will be sort of critical to see with the holidays past us, with the initial you know, uh, difficulties of getting these programs started up behind us, we now will see how effective we can be in getting this out. I do think that we're going to see a real transformation in the next couple of weeks as to how fast we can be vaccinating people. One, because the supply will increase significantly. You know, we're talking about 5 million to 10 million doses coming online every week now. And, uh, and then states will be learning from their mistakes and, and sort of ironing out the kinks in their systems. And we'll also be expanding vaccination to include a lot more larger groups of, the, of our population. So all those will add up to many, many more people being vaccinated, which will be great to see. But also we'll have to monitor how well it goes. For more updates on the COVID-19 vaccine, subscribe to our daily newsletter at theskim.com. File the story under things to keep an eye on in the coming months. Tensions between Iran and the West hitting new highs today. Iran says it will start to enrich uranium up to 20% and will do so as soon as possible. The moves come almost exactly one year after U.S. forces killed top Iranian general Qasem Soleimani. This week, Iran said it had started enriching its uranium to 20% purity. Enriched uranium can be used for two things, nuclear energy and nuclear weapons. And that last part has some people worried, which is why this is coming up in the news. Iran hasn't enriched uranium at this level since 2015, which is when Iran and the US, along with other world powers, signed a big nuclear deal under President Obama. In exchange for the US and other countries removing some financial sanctions, Iran agreed to stop nuclear enrichment way below the levels needed to make nuclear weapons. But newsflash, the Trump administration pulled the U.S. out of that deal in 2018. The Trump administration basically hoped that if they withdrew from the Iran deal, they could kill it. And by killing it, that Trump could get a better deal than Barack Obama, his predecessor. That's Holly Digress. I am a non-resident fellow at the Washington-based think tank, the Atlantic Council. Digress says what we're seeing now, Iran enriching uranium to levels that would have violated the deal is in part a reaction to Trump's maximum pressure strategy. When he pulled the US out of the deal, Trump thought he could get Iran to negotiate a new deal by bringing back old economic sanctions. But Digress says Iran's latest moves could also be designed to put pressure on the incoming Biden administration. Iran saying, hey, bring back the 2015 nuclear deal because you know it's better for both of us. 
the incoming Biden administration has said that, yes, they are interested in returning to the Iran deal, but they hope that Iran will return to strict compliance, which means that they would reverse their actions, such as the 20% enriched uranium. Now, the Iranians have been saying the same exact thing and that they said, well, why don't you return to the deal? Then we will return to strict compliance. So it's like two people trying to get in through the same door right now. The problem being, we're still a few weeks away from that new administration being able to broker a deal. So in the meantime, there's kind of a high stakes game of chicken going on. Well, 20% is definitely a lot bigger number than what was promised in the Iran nuclear agreement. It's still a long way till the 90% that would lead to a possible nuclear weapon. That's a relief, but tensions are still rising. Well, right now we have an aircraft carrier in the Persian Gulf, and we've had B-52 bombers fly over the region, but we've also seen Iran do some maneuvers as well in the past few days. So both sides seems to be showing force to the other side. So Iran isn't that close to having powerful enough uranium for a nuclear bomb, but it wants the US to know it could get there if it wanted to. Meanwhile, the US is saying to Iran, we could stop you by force if we wanted to. The good news? This is an incremental process, but it's also reversible. The point here is that Iran is trying to pressure the United States, specifically the incoming Joe Biden administration, that it is capable of going back to pre-Iran deal days. There aren't many days left in the Trump administration, and Digress says, it's just not a good look for anyone if either side actually starts a war, because it'll make things trickier for both governments. I don't see it escalating, given that there's just such a short period of time. It's finally 2021. And with the year which must not be named behind us, we're kicking it off with the How to Skim Your Life 21-Day New Year's Challenge. Because the one thing we can all agree on is the need to reset. And since resolutions are so last year, this challenge is all about helping you take inventory of the things in your life that matter. Today's topic, how to skim your fridge. Don't worry, we've got you. We called up an expert to walk me through it step-by-step step and help me turn my fridge from a post-holiday disaster zone to something fit for the gram. Hashtag Fridge Goals. Hi guys, my name is Rachel Gurjar. I am a chef slash recipe developer and a food writer, and I'm excited to help you manage your fridge today. All right, so where should we start? I will say this top shelf is mainly cheese. Let's start at the door. You do have condiments generally in one area, but I like to take it one step further. I like to group mustards together. If I have any jams, that goes together. And then if I have any hot sauces, that goes together. What that does is that like mentally, when you open the fridge and you want to grab something, it just like makes it easier for you. And then also, once you get into the habit of things like grouped, especially on your door, like that's where you tend to put it back. So if it goes together, keep it together. And then you never end up buying an extra bottle of ketchup because you forgot about the other one buried in the back behind who knows what. And then I also like to organize that by height. So anything that's taller goes to the back and anything that's shorter generally tends to stay kind of in the front. 
So fridge overcrowding, meet consolidation. Another way to free up fridge space? Knowing what can be banished to the freezer for extra chili safekeeping. Grated Parmesan cheese for Thursday pasta nights? Freezing can actually extend Parmesan shelf life. And if you have a ton of sticks of butter from all your holiday baking leftover, throw some in the freezer to store for when you really need them. Next up, shelves. So the top shelf is what you are looking at the most when you open the fridge. And I also like to keep things that, that I know I'm gonna use every day or every morning. Genius. Rachel also recommends dividing your shelves into zones, like keeping one area for all of your dairy and one area for your leftovers or ingredients that you're planning to use for dinner that night so they're easily accessible. And as for those crisper drawers at the bottom of your fridge, they're there to sort your fruit and vegetables and keep them fresh. So don't do what I did and use them just to store bottles of water. This probably means I should buy more vegetables. Also, if your refrigerator crisper drawers are equipped with control knobs to adjust their individual humidity, use them. Fruits and vegetables, they both need different levels of humidity. So salad leaves, they need more humidity and that will keep them fresher for a longer time. Whereas fruits need lesser humidity to keep them crisp for a longer time and prevent them from spoiling really quick. Rachel also pointed out that not everything needs to go into your fridge. Foods like onions and potatoes should stay out of the fridge and separate from each other in a cool, dry place out of direct sunlight. You know what they say, every day is a learning day. I'm realizing that the majority of my fridge is just cheese and chocolate, so I guess that's just how I'm getting through this pandemic. Speaking of the pandemic, Rachel shared a quick tip for thinking through your next grocery run. First of all, make a list of things you like to eat. As in, don't panic by anything that you actually won't want to eat or won't be able to finish before it goes bad. Like getting a giant tub of mayonnaise when a small bottle probably would have done just fine. Then try to look for recipes that will actually make you use those things. Not only that, you want to make sure you look at the serving size for the recipe you're making. So if it serves six to eight people and you're just cooking for yourself, you might not want to eat the same meal every day for the rest of the week. But if you did make too much, remember that you can always freeze it. And lastly, Rachel is also a big fan of the first in, first out rule. So if you opened or used something first, that's supposed to be in the front of the fridge. And lastly, don't forget the power of labeling and dating your food as a great way to remind yourself what should be next up on your plate. I'm so confused where all this extra space came from. I'm, I'm looking around to see if I'm missing something. No, you didn't. Yeah, that looks great already. I'm already thinking, what else should I put in here? Should I go hot sauce shopping? This January, The Skim is here to help you start the new year strong. And now you know that when it comes to organizing your fridge, it can be a bit of an art form to keep things fresh. There are still 16 days left in our How to Skim Your Life challenge, so it's not too late to join. Go to theskim.com challenge for more details. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr and Luke Vargas, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. And I'm your host, Justine Davey. We'll be back in your feed again next Thursday. For more skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. <laughs>